Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the LSE for this evening's event. My name is Paulina Bozek. I'm the director of Creative Digital Studio in Nansu. I'm very pleased to be here to welcome Dave Trott back to the LSE today. Dave is the author of Creative Mischief and Predatory Thinking. Dave has founded uh, three famous advertising agencies, Gold Greenlease Trot, Baines Fair Sharky Trot, and Walsh Trot Chick Smith. Born in East London, he went to art school in New York on a Rockefeller scholarship. From there, he started his career in advertising um, as part of the creative team behind uh, well-known ads such as Elo Tosh Gara Toshiba, Ariston, and on and on and on, the Cadbury Flake ads, and many, many more. Dave's agency, Gold Greenless Trot, was voted Agency of the Year by Campaign Magazine and Most Creative Agency in the World by Ad Age in New York. Tonight, he'll be talking about his new book, One Plus One Equals Three. They say that it is stories, not statistics, that inspire us, and there is no shortage of stories to inspire in Dave's latest book. For those of you who are on Twitter, uh, the hashtag for tonight's event is hashtag LSE Trot. Uh, I would ask you to please turn off your mobile phones so as not to disrupt the event. After the lecture, there will be a chance for you to put your questions to Dave in our Q&A. And there will also be a book signing following uh, the Q&A. So please join me in welcoming Dave Trott to give his lecture. Um, I'm not going to tell you lots of stories. Uh, what I am is I'm a creative director. I've always been a creative director. Um, so what I'm going to talk about is creativity. What I'm going to talk about is uh, specifically creativity in advertising, but it's creativity which works wherever you find it. If, <coughs> if you know anything about Edward de Bono at all, the man who invented lateral thinking, Edward de Bono said... Um, there are a lot of people calling themselves creative who are actually mere stylists. Real creativity isn't what you call creativity. Real creativity isn't in art galleries. Real creativity isn't in design museums or copywriters or art directors or what they call the creative department. Real creativity is a function of how you do your job in a surprising manner. Real creativity looks really obvious after you see it, but you couldn't see it coming beforehand you couldn't get there logically. Real creativity is, um, most people can't tell, as, Ed, as Edward de Bono said, most people can't tell the difference between style and creativity. They think, so that's what killed Detroit. Uh, the Detroit thought they take the same old car and every year just reshape it. And they did that from 1930 up until they died in about 1990. And Japan came along and they gave a new solution to what the car is. So it was a brand new car every time, not just restyling. So we'll talk about what creativity is. What's gone wrong in advertising a lot is that we have what's called the creative department. I'm what they call a creative. I'm a creative director. It's called the creative department. That's copywriters and art directors. That means those people think everything that happens in the creative department is creative. And most of it isn't and most of them aren't. And it means everybody else thinks they're off the hook for being creative. Planners, art directors, account men, clients think they don't have to do their job creatively, so they don't. 
So it's really, really dull and boring. Everybody stopped thinking. <coughs> and if you know anything about Buddhism, you know the mind likes to go on autopilot. The mind doesn't actually want to think. It's hard work. And what, what everybody, so what everybody naturally does, currently, where everybody stopped thinking, what's happened to British creativity, used to be the best in the world, now it's absolutely not, in any area, what's happened to British creativity is it's become hypnotised by complexity. Uh, everybody's confusing novelty with creativity. If it's new, if it's a new app, if it's a new piece of technology, a new piece of kit, a new way of doing animation, it must be creative. Well, no, usually it isn't. That's shopping, that's fashion, that's not creativity. Creativity is looking at something everybody else has looked at and seeing something nobody else has seen. Um, I saw it described as uh, talent can hit a target that everybody else can see, genius can hit a target no one else can see. Creativity is really hard, it's reinventing the wheel and your mind doesn't want to reinvent the, the wheel. The mind, <coughs> so we are now, we are now totally enthralled, totally hypnotised, totally mesmerised by complexity in all areas. In, if you're doing any kind of marketing degree or learning any, anything about marketing or business, you'll be learning mainly jargon and bullshit. You'll be, you'll be learning long words and thinking that you're actually learning what you're doing. You're not, you're not learning what you're doing, you're just learning, parrot learning long words. The, uh, and if you're in any kind of digital, you'll be doing the same thing except you'll be doing it with technology. You'll be learning loads and loads of different sorts of technology and thinking that makes you creative. No, that makes you a technician. Creative isn't a job, creative is how you do a job. Creative is thinking. And we've lost the ability to think. I'll give you, for instance, of what I mean. I read uh, an article in a paper last year uh, in a new about uh, something happened in New Zealand. In, an, in New Zealand, I read it in an English paper, but it happened in New Zealand. Uh, November the fifth, Guy Fawkes Day. These people in New Zealand, uh, they they bought a brand new car. The latest, absolutely latest, most modern car you could find, most technological car you could find, a Mazda keyless car. Didn't have a key, it was so modern. Everything happened on a card. You carried this card, and as long as you had this card, this card did everything. It, it handled climate control, it handled automatic parking, it handled GPS, it handled things you can't even find on other cars, as long as you had this card. So the couple got into the car and the husband went to start it and he said, oh, hang on, uh, I left the card in the kitchen. I just better get it. And the wife says, well, how are you going to get it? Oh, you can't get out of the car without the card. You haven't got a key. And he said, Christ, you're right. He said, well, what do we do? Is there any buttons here or anything? And he couldn't find any buttons. He said, is there a book here that tells us how to do it? And he looked for a book and he couldn't find a book. He said, well, how we get, let's get one of the neighbours to see if they can go. He tries to attract the neighbour by sounding the horn. But being November the 5th, Guy Fawkes Day, all the fireworks are going off, all the celebrations, everybody thinks he's just part of the celebrations. After two or three hours, him and the wife are getting really fed up and he thinks, sod this, and he leans over the back, he gets a jack out from under the back seat and starts trying to break the windows. And he can't break the windows. Now it's five or six hours and it's gone midnight. And 
He, his wife's passed out now from lack of air in the car, because it's airtight. He's in there all night trying to work out how to get out. It, nine hours, ten hours, the dawn's coming up. One of his neighbours is walking the dog. He manages to attract the neighbour's attention. The neighbour calls, the, he tells the neighbours what's up. The neighbour calls the police. The police call the ambulance and the fire brigade. The fire brigade come along and cut him out of the car. They take him to the hospital after 13 hours. The hospital said, if you'd been in there another half hours, you would have died from suffocation, from asphyxiation, lack of air. Uh, what the bloke... They were in the hospital three days before they were allowed out again. What never occurred to him was to try the door handle. He didn't find out until afterwards, and now he's suing Mazda. If he'd tried the door handle, he could have let himself out. But, like the rest of us, his brain's gone. That's far too obvious. That's dinosaur thinking. You want technology, and technology does everything. And that's what's happened to creatives. You've given up your job, you've given up your brain. You're all thinking now, all actually using your brain without technology, is dinosaur thinking. If you're a creative, what do you think your job is now, if you're a creative? Is your job content curation? Is it native advertising? Is it crowdsourcing? Is it cross-channel, cross-device? Is it mobile optimised? Is it storytelling? Is it media platform convergence? Is it hyper-local, big data, wearable tech? Maybe it's heuristics, or is it algorithms, or metrics? Is it site analytics, rich media, multi-screen experience, video play platforms? Maybe your job is SEO, CRM, CSR, CTR, CMS, UGC, KPI or ROI. For me, the only three letters missing is WTF. <laughs> Creatives are confused. Einstein said, if you can't explain it to an 11-year-old, you haven't pro properly understood it. And that's the truth of it. It's, it's everybody is in thrall, hypnotised by complexity. Everybody is so frightened of missing a bit of complexity that they actually miss the real radical creativity of what we're supposed to be doing. So what is creativity? What would it look like? Well, the man who invented good advertising, Bill Birnbach, the man who invented good advertising, Bill Birnbach, said... It may well be that creativity is the last unfair advantage we're legally allowed to take over the competition. Now that's so good I'll say it again. It may well be that creativity is the last unfair advantage we're legally allowed to take over the competition. So creativity is a legal unfair advantage. Now you can find that or you can manufacture it, but that's what creativity is. It isn't what you call style. What's a legal unfair advantage? What's an example of a legal unfair advantage? Well, it won't be asking the same old question and bashing your head on it and hoping something change. It'll be upstream thinking. You don't try and solve the problem at the level at which you created the problem. You get upstream of the problem and solve a different problem. So that problem doesn't occur. The example I use is two explorers walking through the jungle and they hear a tiger roar and they hear the tiger running towards them. And one explorer gets down and starts putting on running shoes. And the second explorer says, you're crazy if you think you can outrun a tiger. And the first explorer says, I don't have to outrun a tiger, I just have to outrun you. <laughs> you can't solve a problem of outrunning a tiger. 
But a tiger doesn't have to eat two people, it only has to eat one, and it doesn't have to be me. Now, if we're using upstream thinking, in advertising, my art, my art school was in New York, and it was a Bauhaus art school, and um, the, the, the motto of the Bauhaus is form follows function. I love that because I love the uh, democracy of it. I love the fact that you can take anything apart using form follows function. You don't have to have six experts telling you a thing is good and you've got to take their word for it. You take a thing apart, form follows function. First you define the function and that dictates the form. You'll know how good a thing is by how well it fulfills a function. If a chair is beautiful but you can't sit in it, it's not a fucking chair. <laughs> it's a piece of sculpture. Now, what would be the problem in advertising terms? We need a problem to solve. Form follows function. Einstein said, if, I had an, if the world was about to, to be destroyed and I had an hour to save it, I'd use 55 minutes defining the problem and five minutes on the solution. Because I know if I got the problem right, the solution would be easy. So, What's the problem that we need to define? The function that we need to find a form for? In advertising, every year in the UK, 18.3 billion pounds are spent on all forms of advertising and marketing. Of that, 4% is remembered positively, 7% is remembered negatively, 89% isn't noticed or remembered. So the problem isn't the 4% that, obviously the problem isn't the 4% that's remembered positively. Where most people go wrong is the problem also isn't the 7% that's remembered negatively. At least that's remembered, at least that can work. People think the job of advertising is to be liked. No, the job of advertising is to work. That's the function, just like a chair. The job isn't to look pretty, the job is to work. So the 7% that's remembered negatively also isn't the problem. The 89% that isn't noticed or remembered, that's the problem. 17 billion quid pissed away by so-called experts every year. Now, if you think that's harsh, roughly 90% of advertising is invisible. If you think that's harsh, in major conurbations, big cities, we're exposed to 2,000 advertising messages a day. But let's assume it's only a thousand, for the sake of easy numbers. A thousand each of you is exposed to a thousand advertising messages a day. Between the radio, between um, cross-track posters, if you use the tube, posters on the bus, if you don't, ads in the free giveaway papers, pop-ups and pre-rolls on your laptops. Everything you see out there, a thousand advertising messages a day. As a consumer, not something you've worked on, but as a consumer, Hold your hand up if you remember one from yesterday. Anyone remember an ad from yesterday? Correctly attributed, what the ad was, what it was saying, who ran it? Anyone remember? One, two, three, four. Four? Five, sorry, five. Okay, what we got here, 300 people? 1,000 each, that's 300,000, you remember five. That's the scale. It's wallpaper. You're, you mainly, you walk through blotting it out because it's wallpaper. We don't understand the media. 
Everybody assumes we will notice it just because it's done. The, the most important sentence on the brief is never written on any brief. What would be the most important sentence on any brief? People must notice this advertising. Never written on a brief. Every year, everybody assumes just because I've done an ad, people are going to notice it. And every year, 17 billion quid is pissed away by so-called experts. People who've been to college, done their marketing degrees, learned all the language and bluff and bluster and jargon and can't do the job. They can't do the job because they don't understand the media. So let's have a look at the media. What's the media? Let's have a look at the history of media. By the way, it sounds like I'm angry. I'm not. <laughs> I'm just, when you're dead quiet, I talk louder. Yeah, I'm used to a room full of creatives with a bit of noisy back and forth. So when you're all dead quiet, I think I naturally shout louder. Anyway, let's have a look at the history of media. Can you? Oh, thanks. Go on, Lily. Ah, there we go. We're going old school. History, history of media. Here's the consumer. First way we tried to get to the consumer was with cave paintings. Then it all changed and we had frescoes and oil paintings. Then it changed again and we had photography. Changed again and we had uh, film, cinema. Changed again we had TV, changed again, and we had digital, changed again, and we had social, and pretty soon it's going to change again to whatever some new media guru tells us is the next new media that's going to kill all other media and there'll be, never be anything like it. Do you notice one thing on there that isn't changing? One thing on there that's never changed, one thing on there that will never change. That's the media. These are just delivery systems to get to the media. None of those pass themselves on. Nothing happens. Every year, every day on YouTube, hundreds of hours lands there and dies because nobody passes it on. It only gets passed on if it gets space in his mind, his or her mind. Like any, it has to be a great idea. This is when, when a client says to you, I want some viral, he or she thinks, this is viral, social media is... No, no, social media is just another place to buy space. Like five out of 300,000 messages, we remember. They're, they're dead if they don't catch on there. David Abbott said, shit that arrives at the speed of light is still shit when it gets there. <laughs> he, these things don't pass themselves on. YouTube doesn't press itself and pass itself on. Facebook doesn't press itself and pass itself on. It's like you know, it always was in the playground. You told people jokes. 
If you like records, you lent people records. Or you sang songs that caught on with other people. Or you heard them on the radio and you whistled them and they caught on. You passed them on. Whatever it is, a good joke, a good story, he passes it to him, who 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 passes it to him. There's, that's where it goes viral. Not here. Stupid people think that's where it goes viral. Those are just delivery systems. Those are like packages. That's where it goes viral. Let me show you um, a video and see if you recognise this tune. Right, that's, a, that's just an old um, ice cream truck. They <laughs> like it so well they're going to play it twice. That's just an old ice cream truck. Every ice cream truck pretty much plays that tune. Everyone recognises it, pretty much everybody. Everybody knows it, that tune? Anybody know what it's called? Green Sleeves. You all know it's called Green Sleeves. Anybody know who wrote it? Henry VIII wrote it when he was trying to pull Anne Boleyn. He wrote it as a means of, Alas, my love, you do me wrong to cast me off discourteously, for I have loved you so long, delighting in your company. Green sleeves was all my joy, green sleeves was my delight. Yeah? Where the fuck was Twitter, if we remember that 500 years later? <laughs> Where the fuck was Facebook, if we remember that 500 years later? How come if the only way anything goes social is through social fucking media, we remember that 500 years later after he wrote it. There wasn't even electricity when he wrote that. <laughs> human mind to human mind to human mind. Everything you know pre-1990, every piece of art, Shakespeare, every piece of writing, everything you know pre-1990 was pre-social media, pre-technology, and it went viral brain to brain to brain to brain. Not, not all of the technology that is currently bamboozling everybody and keeping everybody hypnotised and killing creativity, stopping people thinking. The, um, so our proper area of study, as Bill Birnbeck said, our proper area of study should be the human mind. It should be simple, timeless human truths. If you know anything about behavioural economics, behavioural economics is described as human understanding for business advantage. So, let's look at human understanding. How does the brain work? And knowing what we know, which is that stupid people think complicated things are clever, really smart people know you've got to go beyond complicated to get to simple. So we're going to keep this simple. Advertising, like anything else you're going to do, everything's semiotics, everything is language. Whether or not it's words, it's... it's signs, it's symbols, it's communication, it's language, so it's communication. So, every conversation you have from the day you're born till the day you die, keeping it simple, is composed of three elements. And like a funnel, it must work this way around. It must have impact, it must have communication, and it must have persuasion. 
and it must work that way around. If you don't have any impact, obviously nothing can happen. I don't know there's anything there, nothing can happen. If you have impact, but you have no communication, nothing can happen. That's just like an explosion. I know something happened, but I don't know what it wants. If you have an impact and communication, but no persuasion, I don't know why I should do what you want or be interested, nothing happens. Need the three things, that way around, impact, communication, persuasion. It's not complicated, that's everything in your daily life, everything. If I'm at home watching the football on TV and I want a cup of tea, but I don't want to get up and make it in case I miss a goal. I want the wife to make me a cup of tea. So, what do I do? First off, I've got to get on her radar. I say, Kath, Kath, Kath. And eventually she'll say, what? <laughs> I'm on her radar, I've got impact, right? Now, in a language she understands, which seems to be beyond most advertising nowadays, for anybody to do something that people understand, I've got to say in a language she understands, make us a cup of tea. What's she going to say? Why don't you make it yourself? Ah. So I've now got to find something here persuasive. So I've got to think, well, what doesn't she like doing that will seem like a good deal? She doesn't like putting the garbage out. She doesn't like struggling with the plastic bag, bin liner. So I say to her, maybe, tell you what, after the game's over, I'll put the garbage out if you make us a cup of tea now. Now, if she thinks that's a good deal, I've got a sale. <laughs> Impact, communication, persuasion. Can you think of any reason any advert wouldn't have those three elements in it? Any communication any wouldn't have those. I'm never going to have a that says, I want impact, but I don't want, I don't want to communicate and I don't want to persuade. Or, I want to persuade, but I don't want to communicate or I don't want impact. Or, I want to communicate, but I don't want to persuade and I don't want impact. If you haven't got those three things, nothing can happen. And it must happen that way round. They come in the top. Currently, what we know, £17 billion isn't noticed or remembered. We know 89% isn't getting past there. So we're spending all our time in focus groups, in strategy discussions, in briefing meetings, down here. Planners, marketing men, account men, down here. And it's totally wasted because nobody's doing the top bit. We know it's all failing there, so it can't possibly get beyond that. Now, this seems really simple, and like anything really powerful, it is simple. People use different language for the same thing, this funnel. The currently Google and Facebook uh, have just decided that they're not about penetration, they're about reach. So they're now calling this, they've moved their strategy to what they call upper funnel activity. Just a posh word for impact. <laughs> just, just, to make, just to make people think it's worth more. If I, just, this is too simple. If something's simple, you don't trust it. People only trust what's complicated. I was once doing a pitch um, for a supermarket and my partner, the chief exec, the account man, uh, I used to sit there and I didn't understand the language that went on in supermarket in these pitches, so I used to write it down in my notebook, thinking one day this will be like a Harold Pinter play. I can use all these long words in a, in a, in a play. Anyway, Mike said, Mike said to the um, 
guy who owned the supermarket, he said, ah, I see, in order to increase stock turn, you need to optimise your on-shelf activity. No, in order to increase stock turn, you need to optimise your on-shelf margin. That was it. And I wrote that down. Anyway, we got the business. We walked out of the business. We're in the car park, and I said, what would that mean, Mike? In order to increase stock turn, you need to optimise your on-shelf margin. And Mike said, well, it's not, it's, not, it's not difficult. It's not as difficult as it sounds. He said, if we make it cheaper, people will buy more. <laughs> and I said, well, why didn't you just say that? And Mike said, well, he won't give us the business, will he? <laughs> if I say to him, here, Squire, make it cheaper, people will buy more, he's not going to give us the business. It's too simple. I've got to dress it up so it sounds like we are marketing professionals. <laughs> and I understand, you need that kind of bullshit jargon language when you're talking between marketing people and clients. You need that crap. But I don't talk to marketing people and clients. I talk to people in the street, people that actually buy the product. Housewives, bus drivers, taxi drivers. I talk to the 60% of the country that's blue collar. And they don't use that language. They turn off the telly or change the channel with that sort of language. So my language has to be the simple, powerful language. So in this same thing, whereas Google and Facebook are calling it upper funnel activity, we'll call it impact. And... We can actually, if you want to talk, if you wanted to get complicated about this, this is a hierarchy of communications. Advertising isn't marketing. Advertising is the voice of marketing. Where it's confused nowadays is a lot of creative people in advertising think their job is marketing. No, your job is the voice of marketing. Marketing people down here are supposed to tell us what to say. What we are supposed to do is kill everything around us. We're so busy worrying what to say, we forget the fact that nobody's looking. So, in, you're talking about hierarchy of communications, what you might have, looking at it that way, is this should be broadcast communications to get on the radar as broadly as possible. Then this should maybe be online more down here, where you can actually, communication and persuasion online, where you can actually press a button, you can click on it and buy the thing. Put in terms of who does what, down here would be more marketing people, client, uh, account man, planner. This would be more copywriter. This would be more art director. So like a football team, you know, who's asked to kick? If, if you know, the defence, the attack. Here, you know, if people see the ad, but they're not persuaded, you kick the planner and the client's ass. This is the marketing department. If people don't see the ad, you kick the art director's ass. This is very powerful and... It's powerful because it's simple. I've found it's, it's invariably true that uh, the quality of the brief is inversely proportional to the length of the words used. In other words, long words, usually you look at a brief, if it's full of long words, you know it's bullshit before you start reading. He's tried to disguise the fact that that's a crappy brief. If that was a great brief, he'd keep it simple, with monosyllables. You want everybody to understand it. If it's a bad brief, it's like if, you know, university, you've got a crappy thesis, what do you do? You use lots of long words to disguise it, get good marks, so, you, so you, your teacher will be impressed. Like putting perfume on a bad smell. That's all, that's all that complicated stuff is. If we know this is where it's failing, impact, and we know that's the most important, and we know 89% is failing there, let's have a look at how that works. So how that works is a thing called, how the human mind works, how that works, is a thing called gestalt. That's the, that's the operating system for the human mind. You look it up in Wikipedia, you find out about that. 
you'll find out how it works. The, um, in our terms, I'll tell you the complicated part of that later, but in the simple part of it, the simple punter's part, the actual consumer, if this is a commercial break, here's the first commercial, second commercial, third commercial, fourth commercial, fifth commercial, sixth commercial, seventh commercial, eighth commercial. Now the break's over and we go to bed, get up tomorrow morning and go to the supermarket. Which one of those commercials is most likely to have survived that erosion process? Is it the first circle or the last circle? Or is it the second circle, which is a nicer version of the first circle? Or is it the third circle, which actually looks like it could win a DNAD award? Or is it this circle, which was shot by a very expensive Swedish director and we didn't even have a voiceover on it? Or is it this circle, which had a really expensive soundtrack? That's the, con that's the conversation you'll have in most ad agencies. Which, which, which of these circles is going to win the award? Truth is, you all know it isn't any of the circles. You all know it's that. But nobody does that, because that won't win an award. That takes guts. That takes, that takes people to get back and think differently about what we're here to do. We're not here to win an award from a load of other people who only care about circles. We're here to kill everything else either side of us and be either the 4% that's remembered positively or the 7% that's remembered negatively, but certainly not the 89% that isn't noticed or remembered. So, why does that work like that? Well, it works because gestalt, the mind is a pattern-making machine. You need to know how the mind operates. The mind is a pattern-making machine. If you know anything about, if you have any children of your own, you watch this happen. If you know anything about Freud, you know when you're born you're in a state called id. And id is simple awareness. Everything is everything. Gradually you move over the first few months into, into a state of ego. Ego doesn't mean big-headed, it just means I am. You recognise yourself as separate to everything else. So how you do that, your brains all work, everybody's brain works on a binary system because that's the fastest way of working. It's why computers work on binary. On, off, zero, one, up, down, in, out, left, right, black, white, tall, short, hot, cold, binary system. So that's how you can process millions of bits of information. When you're a baby, all you've got coming at you when you're born is awareness, stuff. Democritus in 300 BC said, all there is in the universe is atoms and void. Everything else is mere opinion. When you're a baby, that's all there is. Stuff coming at you. Gradually, you watch babies, they stick everything in their mouth. Their fingers, their toes, their toys, the crib, the blanket. Gradually what they learn, they bite everything. If it hurts, it's me. If it doesn't hurt, it isn't me. Gradually. And so pretty soon, through that binary system, you're grouping things. Things that don't hurt are me, things that do hurt are me. And by all of the other groupings, you're grouping male, female, black, white, tall, short, everything you're grouping, hot, cold, really, really fast, until by the time you're probably about, I don't know, three to six months, you don't even know you're doing it anymore. Your mind just does it like, like now. You're doing it in your mind. All of the atoms in here, you're not experiencing. You're experiencing your mind's concepts, your mind's grouping of concepts. So, for instance, if I did that, how many digits did I hold up? Ten. You don't have time to go one, two, three, four, five. What you did is 
Two ands, five on each, two fives are ten. That's how you do it, really fast. Your mind groups things. That the, even animals, uh, birds in a nest, they don't count up to, f they can't recognise beyond five, but they can recognise below five if an egg's missing. Beyond five, six, seven, eight, they will know, because they can't count. But they can group things to recognise that. So, what use is that to us? Well, if you take selective perception, once we know we group things, just simple selective perception. If um, I come into work this morning and all there is on the road is bloody cars and they're a nuisance. Loads and loads of cars. I can't cross the road for cars. Uh, I can't get down the street for cars. They're everywhere, making pollution. Just loads and loads of cars. Tonight I go home and I'm thinking about getting a new car. So I say to the wife, should we get a new car? What should we get? And we talk about it and we think, well, we need a four-door car and it's got to be a hatchback and it should be small. And I say, well, what about a Volkswagen Golf? That's a nice car. It's tough, good reputation, durable. What about one of those? And the wife says, yeah, that's good. We'll get a Volkswagen Golf. So we agree, we'll get a Volkswagen Golf. Next day I come into work, a quarter of all the cars on the road are Volkswagen Golfs. How did that happen? quarter of every car, every fourth car I see, pretty much, is a Volkswagen Golf. Where did that happen? Weren't they there yesterday? Yeah, they were, but I didn't have the distinction golfs and not golfs. All I had was cars. Once I set up the mind for a distinction of a distinction of golfs and not golfs, what happens is grouping. Okay, that's selective perception. How is that useful to us? Now we know that. This is how the mind works. This is really useful when you're explaining to a client why, why they should have daring, unusual, different advertising. Most clients are scared stiff. Rory Sutherland said, uh, creative people have a fear of the obvious, but they must sell their work to people who have a love of the obvious. Clients love the obvious because it's what all other clients are doing, and if everyone's doing it, I can't be wrong. What they don't realise is if everyone's doing it, you'll be invisible. In which case, there's no point advertising, keep your money in your pocket. But clients don't see it, junior clients especially, don't see it that way. Senior clients do, entrepreneurial clients. But here's what you need to explain to younger clients. Here's the human mind. And it's got 20 commercials in it, let's say. 20 identical commercials. Now... If I had another commercial that's exactly like all the other commercials, what share of your mind have I got? One out of twenty. Five percent. But because what we now know about grouping, if I had another commercial that's nothing like any of the other commercials, we know I haven't got five percent. Because what your mind does is groups it into two groups. Every commercial that's like that And every commercial that isn't like that, I've now got 50%, just by being different. Now, on its own, of course, that's not enough just to be different. But, that gets us past there. We can now worry about getting this right. Because nobody's doing that, everybody's doing that. 
So, we're getting stuck there. If you control the context, when you position yourself, you reposition the competition. When you position yourself as that, you reposition everybody else as not that. So, you own 50%, you reduce everybody else to 50%. If you own the question, if you get upstream and change the question and own the question, you can own the context, and if you own the context, you own the territory of the mind. Let me give you a for instance of what I mean. I don't know how much you know about American history, but uh, hold, don't shout out the answer. Right? I'll say that again, don't shout out the answer. Hold your hand up if you know the answer. Because if you shout it out, you ruin it. But hold your hand up if you know the answer. Who was the 44th President of America? One, two, three, four, yeah? No, I was there. Three out of 300. So 1% knows who was the 44th President of America, yeah? Okay, who was the first black president of America? Hold your hand up. It's the same bloke. All I did was change the question. Now I own half your mind. I didn't change the product, I just changed the question, which changed the context, which gave me half the territory. That's getting upstream. That's changing it from a problem you can't solve, the 44th president, to let's reposition everybody else as ordinary old white guys <laughs> and I'm going to be the one guy that isn't white. Now, that's a tough sell to a client because what a client will normally say is, ooh, I don't know if I want to mention being black. I don't know, you know, ooh, that's, that's grasping the nettle. Well, yeah, mate, I think everybody's going to spot it. But clients don't get that. Like you, that's why you've got to walk clients through why you should do this. I always find the clients I work best with are clients that are in trouble. Because when they're in trouble, they've got to take a chance. If they're not in trouble, they just roll along doing the same old stuff. And they're lazy and they're smug and they rest on their laurels. But if they're in trouble, if you don't pull this plane out of a dive, you're going into the ground. You've got to do something desperate. That's when you can do something like... We've got, we got something here that repositions every other presidential candidate. They are all white, they've always been white. This repositions every other presidential candidate in history. You'd be, you'd be a mug if you threw it away. The, so, what happens there, I'll tell you one last thing if you, uh, about that, that will help you a lot with clients, um, about going viral. If you really want to go viral, and why viral isn't about social media, viral is about the consumer, the human brain. If you normally, what you'll do is break, break it down by demographics. Break your customers down by demographics. Demographics is not so useful as basic psychographics. Psychographics sounds complicated, and it is a bit of a wanky term. It, 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 just basically means the difference between opinion formers and opinion followers. What are they and why would we care? Well, 
Uh, I was talking to a financial forum recently uh, about their advertising and um, we were talking about how their, their, it breaks down in financial market. Uh, a fair sized account, a, a small account would be five million pounds. Reasonable size account, 10 million pound, 15 million, you're starting to get into a big account. You know direct line advertising? Do you see direct line advertising? They, you know how much they spend? 83 million. Direct line every year spends 83 million. That isn't big, that is fuck off big. <laughs> and, and, and that's 10% of the financial market, which itself is 10% of the advertising sector. So that's huge. You don't have to be any good with that kind of money. You can do any old crap and it will work because you can just bash it, the daylights out of it again and again and again and again until everybody remembers it just by virtue of having seen it in every commercial break. You don't have to be any good to work. You can, for 83 million quid you can virtually go around and shake hands with every potential customer. <laughs> 83 million, you, but hey, there ain't going to be many people that have got 83 million quid. So if you haven't got 83 million, if you've only got 8 million, how do you compete with someone who's got 83 million? Because otherwise they're just going to bury you. Well, what we look at is opinion formers and opinion followers. Sorry. What are opinion formers and opinion followers? So, uh, if you ever work on a beer account, what you do is you go into a pub and you'll notice there's groups of blokes standing around, like five, five blokes talking. There'll usually be one bloke leading the conversation in each of those groups. He'll have seen something on History Channel that's really interesting. He'll know, he'll know the latest gossip on Man United. He'll have seen a story about the Second World War. He'll, he'll, he'll be a new joke he heard. He'll be leading the conversation. Everybody else will be chipping in here and there, but he'll be doing most of the talking. He's the opinion former. The other guys are all the opinion followers. If you go in Starbucks, you'll see tables full of women. Three, four, three or four women. And in each table, one woman will be doing most of the talking. The other women will all be chipping in when they feel like it. They'll be doing 50% of the talking between them. She'll be doing 50% of the talking on her own. They don't care. They don't want to lead the conversation like she is. They don't want that pressure. They just want to listen and chip in when they feel like it. She's the opinion former. They're the opinion followers. One opinion former can influence as you can see, many opinion followers. At least half a dozen or more opinion followers. So, if we take our eight million and spend it against opinion formers, we can, you, and we influence them, and we trigger them to influence opinion followers, eight times six is 48, we're getting our eight million up to going on 50 million quids worth of value. Free media that we're not paying for by triggering viral media. The difference is, and this is what your client needs to know, when you've got 83 million quid, any old crap works down here with opinion followers. Because you can just bash them over the head with it again and again and again and again. But that won't work down here. Opinion, that won't work up here. Opinion formers don't want any old crap. Opinion formers need something they can talk about it. They need something new, they need something fresh, they need something different. Opinion formers need something outrageous and new and unusual. That's where the X's work, that's where what's different works with opinion formers. They will then make it go viral to opinion followers. Now, by keeping it simple, 
So, all I want you, just the final thing just to say on all of that, is all of this is all about working out how not to become bamboozled by complexity, how not to become overpowered by technology, how not to become sucked into jargon and bullshit, how to just use your brain to open the fucking door handle. When you're locked in and you don't know how to get out, just rediscover your brain before the technology, before the jargon. Most people knew more about advertising when they were ordinary human beings before they got into advertising. The more you learn about jargon and technology and complexity, the further you away you move from the actual job you're supposed to be doing. So just please keep that in your mind and remember to try the door handle. Thanks. Thank you very much for your lecture. Now we're going to open the floor to questions from the audience. Um, if you can please state your name and affiliation and just wait for the roving mics to get to you. Got first question over here. Uh, Nick Fitzherbert, I'm a communications consultant. Uh, Dave, I just wonder how often in your career were you given a really great brief? And were you able to coach your, coax your clients into gradually giving you better briefs? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. What, where I'm luckier than most creatives <coughs> is uh, I learned before there were planners. And um, in those days we had to use our brains. What you had was account men and creatives and where the strategy actually occurred was where the account men and the creatives crossed. The creatives all thinking about impact and the account men all thinking about the business problem and if we can put our realities of getting on the radar together with what their business problem was, we came up with a great strategy. What happened was, uh, and I was at BMP when this happened, BMP was where they invented planning. Well, BMP and Thompson's, but I know about BMP. I saw it happening. Gradually, they, they worked out we can charge clients for that bit if we separate it off. So, account men then became over here, creatives over here, and planning became a separate thing in the middle. And planning, you university graduates would come out and go into planning. And so you got people who were totally non-creative doing the strategy. No involvement from the account men, no involvement from the creatives. So that's, that's largely where all your bad briefs came from. And that's the, when the briefs were like this, it was very pliable. And there was a lot of argument backwards and forwards about that's a great brief but we can't, we can't make it cut through. Or that's... The argument here when it was like this was... Um, You always want your advertising to be relevant and visible. It's, got, it's no good just being visible if it says the wrong things. You end up with be a bit more dog. <laughs> right, you persuaded me, I'll get a dog. 
the it's relevant sorry it's visible but it's not relevant so what you what you'd have and this is a discussion I used to have with Martin Bowes he said that what happens is he said his advertised BMP's advertising he said was always relevant and visible and that's what made us better and I'm thinking well anybody would say that of course you'd say that but the truth is as we get down to a deadline what happens is you get dragged one or two ways if we can't make it relevant and visible you get dragged towards the visible irrelevant or the relevant invisible now the client and the account man will drag you that way to the relevant invisible and the creatives will drag you to the visible irrelevant unfortunately you don't still have the ability to fight it out and compromise and synthesize which you used to have now what seems to happen is the draw is there so you'll usually go to either the visible irrelevant or the relevant invisible uh, and the best briefs to answer your question uh, always and, 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 and you see Bill Birnbach doing it and everyone the best briefs always came for me from a mix between account handling and client and creatives and usually a fight and usually a compromise and uh, an opportunity that nobody spotted because those guys are not going to spot the opportunity there and those guys are not going to spot the opportunity there unless you get in a room and fight it out so the best briefs for me were, were, were a synthesis of those two and since you've separated it off and driven everybody into separate camps uh, we now don't get briefs, we now just get a straight split. Uh, you don't sorry? You don't like clans. No, I like great people and I don't care what they're called. The, the, truthfully, I've worked with some great planners and some crap planners, but I've worked with some great creatives and crap creatives, same with media, same with accounting. I don't like the institution of planning uh, being thought to supersede everything else because it looks scientific. Uh, some of the planners I've worked with have been great, and, and, and I mean that, but that's because they're great people. If they had been account men, they would have been great. I like, I like great people, and I really don't care what they're, what, what, what they're called or what department they're in. I just like people that... I like ad people. I like people that sit in a room and the whole concentration is, let's do the best ad here. And part of the ad is, what's going to make the most stand out? What's going to convince the, the consumers? And what's going to solve the client's business problem? And not what's going to fulfil the insight that we got out of a focus group? Yeah? I think we've got bigger issues than just something that happened in a focus group. It's usually a market generic. And a market generic is only going to work for the market leader. And, and so, you know, any market, in simple human terms, any market, you're either product A or product B. You either own the market or you don't. Now, I know there's usually one that owns it and lots that don't, but actually, that doesn't matter. You either own it or you don't. If you own it and you grow it, it doesn't matter if anybody remembers your name because you get that much share of any growth. So if you own the market, you grow the market. That's not difficult. If you don't own the market, it would be stupid to grow the market because you give away that much share of your advertising. If you grow the market, if you don't own the market, you take share out of whoever does own the market. So to just go to a focus group and come back with market generic, we've got an insight into milk, 
only works if you own the milk market. If you're one of the brands that doesn't own the milk market, that's a stupid thing to do. Same with sneakers or anything else. If you look at, if you look at Apple do it properly, uh, Nike do it properly, Adidas don't do it properly. Uh, you, 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 look at all, you look at how everybody does it, you can do it for yourself and just ask yourself, do they own the market, are they going to share, are they going to growth? That's the most important question you'll ever have to answer. That's the question most people get wrong. The, that's a good day's discussion in any market before you start. And again, the clarity, the brutal simplicity of it is what makes it powerful. The fact that you won't move off that simplicity. Anyway, sorry, that, that answer there? Thank you very much. Yeah? <laughs> Next question. Um, the lady in a black sweater up there. Um, my name's Meredith Ward and I work for Coots. We have, um, we're told constantly that people tell uh, people about good experiences, but they tell people about bad experiences six times more. How do you think that relates to your message about Sorry, person? Meredith, I didn't, oh. didn't hear that. People tell um, about good experiences, but they pass on bad experiences to six times more people. I've got people who tell about good experiences, but they pass on bad experiences. To six times more people. To six times more people, so you'll tell one person people. about a good experience and six people about a bad experience. Yeah. Do you think that you can use that, or is that something that you try to overcome? Well, I think, of course, you can use that in advertising. I mean, it's, you, can't, you can't do it all the time, but it depends on what you've got to say. If I've got something really strong to say about myself over the competition, then that's me knocking the competition, and if it's really powerful, then I would do that. Yeah, I wouldn't always do it. I mean, the... the See, the thing about being creative is there isn't a formula. Bill Birnbach said, principles endure, formulas don't. If I can give you a formula, then it's not creative, because I can program that into a computer. Here's the ten rules for creativity. You know that's not creative, because it's ten rules. What it has to be is I have to outthink you. It's like a football game. If you know exactly how I'm going to play before I come out, you must be able to beat me. So the thing is to outguess you before I come out. Do you know? So, is negative, I think what you're asking me is, is negative advertising more powerful than positive advertising? It depends what you're doing. With beer, no. With things like perfumes, with sensory things, no. With distress purchases, like tyres, that keep you safe and save your life, and maybe keep, you, keep your family and your children alive, then maybe yes. yes. Depends on the product and the circumstances. It's no good if I've got beer to sell and I say our client's beer goes flat in half, half the time that we do, then that's not going to sell any beer. Because beer is all about drinking the label. I sell beer because you, you, <coughs> you think it's Mexican or you think it's uh, uh, Japanese. Or you, you, so you, you, you drink the experience. But similarly, with something like tyres for your car, it would be no good selling them because they're Italian tyres, because I don't give a damn about that. I give a damn what's going to keep me alive. You've got to differentiate. Uh, uh, an FMCG, it would make sense to sell it on taste, whereas a distress purchase, it would make sense to knock the competition. You understand what, what I mean? Yeah? If, if there's anything you don't understand about this, stop me, because I'm assuming this is obvious to everybody, and it might not be.
next question over here um, in purple. Um, following on from that, say recently there was this big controversy about that advert. Um, I can't remember the name of the company, but it was about having your body beach ready. Beach body red. ready, yes. yeah. I was wondering, what, how would you advise that company about that campaign? How did I? How would you, what would you s say about that, you know, the impact of that? And uh, well, it's, for me it's pretty simple. They spent 100 grand and they got about 12 million quids worth of publicity. <laughs> Well, I think every woman that wants to be thin, uh, and from what I can gather, their replies were up tenfold, every woman that wants to be thin wasn't thinking, oh, how disgusting, I'm not going near them. Every woman that wants to be thin was thinking, oh, all right, and dialing the number. <laughs> I think, you know, hey, it's, it's, if the message is right, do you want to be thin, here's how you do it, then you, com you, you communicate that in the most powerful possible way. If the message is right, it will work. If the message is wrong, it won't work. You've got to be appropriate. Now, the only argument is, is that appropriate? Uh, for me, I don't know. For me, Dawn French said, if it's bad taste, it's not funny, and if it's funny, it's not bad taste. I don't think there's a rule. I think, you, I think it's a call for yourself. I don't think it's a particularly good ad. It didn't, nothing funny about it. It didn't make me laugh. It's just, oh, I couldn't believe it got as much fuss made about it as it did. Well, it is a woman in a bikini. Blimey, you know, so what? It's, you want to look like that? Here's a number. You don't want to look like that? Well, don't call it. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't believe it. You know, millions of Guardian readers rushing around being outraged. <laughs> Desperately sort of, you know, well, hey, you know. <laughs> I can't see what the fuss was about. It's a woman in a bikini. It's no big deal, but that's my personal taste. I thought some of the things people did with it was very funny. You know, uh, people doing fat blokes saying, are you beer body ready? <laughs> I thought that was really funny. I thought it's like, it's, you know, if it adds to the general gaiety of the nation, I'm all for it. I'm not, a, I'm not, I'm not one to judge. Uh, I'm, I'm big, I like controversy a lot. And I'm not one to judge what people should or shouldn't be allowed to do. Uh, like, I'll advertise cigarettes. If they're legal, you should, you should be allowed to advertise them. If you shouldn't be allowed to advertise them, don't have them be legal. I'm, I'm not about hypocrisy. You do it all one way or all the other. So, uh, if a lot of women want to look like that in a beach... beach now, the bigger thing, the, actually the, the, the truer thing, is that product doesn't work. That's the bigger problem. I don't have any problem with the ad. That's a silly little problem for me. The bigger problem is should you be allowed to advertise a product that doesn't work? What that is is a protein supplement. And it's a protein supplement that was originally marketed for old people who weren't getting enough protein in their diet. So what they then made the leap to say, well, look, people who diet also don't get enough protein supplements, so let's sell it as a slimming aid. Now, that's actually a lie. It's not a slimming aid. It won't help you. It won't stop you eating. It will give you protein if you're stopping eating. I have a bigger problem with lies than I do with a bird in a bikini. That's like, that's a little matter of taste for me and you each make your own mind up about that. But a lie, that shouldn't be allowed. The product shouldn't be allowed to call itself a slimming aid. So I think you decide uh, what you want to fight for.
I'll fight for truth and honesty. I won't fight for personal judgment. Everybody's got their own idea on that. Okay, question over here. Gray, gray shirt. Hi, I'm Alex, and I'm a planner. Um, you... <laughs> I feel obliged to ask a question. Um, you mentioned that 11% um, of uh, ads are either remembered positively or negatively. Can effective advertising uh, work implicitly? So you're talking about... See, that's a whole area I don't like. That's... Um, uh... I, I find that dishonest. I find that's like what they call native advertising, which is lying about advertising. This is advertising. Let's be honest about it. If you can't do it properly, don't do it. Don't do it and pretend it's something else. Native advertising is pretending it's editorial. It's lying about advertising. Because you're ashamed of being in advertising. Well, if you're ashamed of it, don't do it. The English people have a real problem with that. I was trained in New York. English people have a real problem with advertising. They don't really want to be doing it. It's selling, it's grubby, it's nasty. They don't really want to do it. We'd rather not put a pack shot on the end of the ad. We'd rather not have to put a name in it. We certainly don't want to put a jingle in it and talk to the common hoi polloi. This is art we're doing. Well, no. That's, that's just wank. <laughs> and it doesn't work. It will, it will carry on for another couple of years. Gradually, it already seems to be dying, that kind of stuff. The, the big agencies, the big companies can do that because it doesn't matter for them if their advertising works. I was talking to the guys who originally did the Audi advertising, the BMW advertising and the Volvo advertising. When those companies were in trouble, they needed good advertising. Now they're not in trouble, now they're all really successful because the advertising worked. But now they're all successful, now they're starting to do crap advertising because they don't need good advertising anymore. Now they're successful. And they start to do stuff that you don't even know what it's about. It's, it's a little piece of art film. It's not an ad. Now, you know, I think that's a middle class thing. I think the working class are perfectly happy with ads. As long as they're good, as long as they're fun. Howard Gossage said, people don't read advertising. They read what interests them and sometimes it's an ad. If, you, if advertising, if you learn to compete with other media, everything in all other media, instead of having this separated off world of advertising as if people care, you just try to do it so it's fun. So, like it used to be, when people turn on the ad, they like your song, they like your joke, they'll watch it again and again and again. It isn't now, it's middle class done for middle class. And let's pretend it's not an ad. So, for me, Absolutely it doesn't work, and if it did work, it should be banned. Because it's, it's pretending it's not advertising. In the 50s, they, 19, this is how corny this shit is, in, in the 50s, they used to do what they called subliminal advertising. Taking one frame out of every 24 and putting a message on it, and making you believe that would turn people into robots who would go out and buy whatever you... No, mate, this is just ads. This is just, for fuck's sake, it, do it properly. Don't look for a way to avoid doing it properly. Don't look for subliminal ads. Don't look for native ads. Don't look to put some language on it that isn't there. Just get off your ass and do it properly. Do something that people want to watch, a song they want to repeat, something that gets used in their daily life, something that's a contribution to people. And then you won't have to pretend it's not advertising. Then you can be proud of what you do instead of being ashamed of it. Right here in the front row. 
Hi, I'm Azmita, and I work as a brand manager for Birdseye. I was interested in you mentioning FMCG earlier because the model in FMCG now is so much moving towards the centralization of advertising. So it could be someone in headquarters is making you an ad and you're here in the UK just waiting for this ad to resonate. Have you got an example of, or how would you tackle, I guess, central briefs? How do I tackle? How would you tackle a brief that comes from HQ, for example, but that has to work across multiple markets. What's the way to crack that? So you've got to say it simpler for me. Sorry. <laughs> oh, no, comms. How do I tackle? How would you tackle something that had to come from a head office, so not from where it was supposed to work? So say I've got a central office in Germany. Yeah. And they do all the advertising for all of the markets, and I'm here in the UK. Yeah. I guess how would you tackle something like that to make it work? If there was one ad, you had to make work across everything, across all markets. So Germany does all the advertising and they run it in the UK and what yeah. would I do about that? Yeah, how would, you make, I don't, how would you make advertising that would work across multiple countries? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in localised advertising because as soon as, you, as soon as you drop the local, you drop 50% of your possibilities. As I say, I was trained in New York, I was a copywriter in New York, Apart from the English language, we've got nothing in common with Americans. The, the, I don't know who Howdy Doody or Captain Kangaroo or Buffalo Bob was. They don't know the 66 World Cup squad or Desperate Dan or the Bash Street Kids or anything like that. So none of my ethnic background I can draw on. The, what's happening at the moment is in order to uh, get bigger production budgets for more CG, <coughs> people are pooling their European budgets to make one big commercial that runs across Europe. What that means is you can't have language on it. So what you've got is you've got visual only, or if you've got language, it has to be some, something you can dub in each country, but pretty, so there's no lip sync, and it'll be pretty bland, but it'll be dubbed, and it'll be a visual that works in every country. So already, it's pretty bland, you've thrown away most of your, your, your local opportunity. See, what goes viral isn't pictures, I don't say, you know, call someone up and say, oh, there's a great picture on the box last night. Did you see it? There's a, you know, a dolphin jumping over a thing and it should have been a white horse and there was a, you know, some fish underneath. That's not what goes viral, it's a song or some words. You know, I heard David Cameron last year saying, there's a bloke in his cabinet and uh, they call him Ron because, like Ron Seal, he does exactly what he says on the tin. That's brilliant. You've got the Prime Minister picking up your line and using it. But he picks up your line and uses it. Words go viral. And, you know, where I had Maggie Thatcher with one of mine once. Uh, uh, she stood on the, on the outside number 10 and they said, are you going to resign, Prime Minister? She said, no, I shall go Ariston and on and on and on and on. You can't buy that. But she didn't say, I shall go picture of a cartoon outside a washing machine. <laughs> yeah? Pictures don't go viral. It logically, in Bookkeeper, and nowadays all agencies, because they're big conglomerates, are run by bookkeepers, in Bookkeeper logic, it makes sense to pool everything into a bigger amount so we get a bigger budget. Yeah, numbers on a page, but it doesn't actually work in human brain because pictures don't go viral. You win some awards for it because when you go to Cannes, all the French people like the picture and it all looks very arty. But it doesn't go viral with the punters. The punters have been left out of the loop. With, between conversations about, you know, and, and I know I was hard on you because it's a sore spot with me, 
but between conversations about subliminal marketing and between uh, pan-European marketing, you know, no wonder it doesn't work. This is all like this is all like left-brain academic university logic, white-collar middle-class university logic. It's got nothing to do with the people on the street. It's got nothing to do with getting this pick, picked up and used and spread about. And if you want to go viral, you've got to look back at the mind. And what goes viral in the mind is language. You can pass on music. There are whole radio stations based on music, nothing but music. People want to hear the same old song again and again and again. You can do that. But in today's modern, that's considered corny to do that. The only music you're allowed to do is a bit of drum and bass behind a bland old visual. Well, that's not going to go viral. It's just a bit of decoration. People don't know the difference between decoration and function. If the function is to go viral, then you have to look back at what goes viral and where you want it to go viral and how that works. And how that works is language. Language and, and music. And so I don't... So I, don't know there's a lot you can do with a German commercial. <laughs> no, I mean, it's not, it's not a... Everybody's got the same problem. You start off from the wrong position. You start off from, how can we get a big budget to win an award, rather than how can we make it go viral? If you make it go viral, you have different commercials for every market. And you have them language-based. My opinion. Question there in the back. Gentleman in the blue shirt. You know this is all my opinion, by the way. This isn't fact. Yeah? Even I know it's only my opinion. Thanks. Hi, Dave. My name's Ollie Mines. I'm just wondering, uh, out of all your time in the industry and the agencies you? you've sorry. run... Where, where Hi, I'm here. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Hi. Can you think of a campaign of which you're least proud? Um, why and what happened with it? We tried to win an award, and we did win an award. And we, we sold nine units... Could you elaborate? Huh? Could you elaborate on that? What was the brand and, and what was the campaign? Yeah, it was, um, it was WK some housewares and we had a Chinese bamboo steamer. They had millions of them. And uh, they wanted them sold. And so Steve Henry was the creative on it and I was the, I was the creative director. And Steve had this great idea. I thought it was a great idea, a very funny idea. As it was about bamboo steamer, let's tell people how it works but so it's not boring, let's do it like a cookbook. Let's do it like a, 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 cook, a cooking show. So in those days, everybody remembered a show called Fanny and Johnny Craddock, which was a husband and wife team. And uh, so we said, OK, but we'll have it as a Chinese husband and wife team. Fanny and Johnny Craddock. And, and uh, they'll, they'll be showing you, they'll be doing Chinese cooking and showing you how to, uh, how to do this. And... <clears throat> but the only Chinese actor we could get who could even read the lines was a guy called Bert Kwok. And he had a moustache on, but he wouldn't shave it off. So we had to have Fanny Craddock with a moustache, Chinese Fanny Craddock with a moustache, uh, reading the lines. And it was hysterically funny. As I say, it sold nine units and it won a DNAD award. <laughs> and that's about where awards are at. Question right here in the front. This lady in the front. Hi. 
Hi, Dave. I'm Diana, and I mostly know you from your blog. Oh, okay. I really enjoy your posts. So my question is related to structure. I like the fact that you use anecdotes to make a point. So my question is, do the ideas generate a search for the anecdotes, or do the stories actually inspire the conclusions? Stories first. Stories first. Sure. It's, uh, if you're, I mean, it's, it's, look at your own mind. You know, you don't need a group of housewives if you look at your own mind. When you go to the supermarket, you are the consumer. All you've got to do is watch yourself when you're standing in the consumer. In, in that, why did I pick that and not that? Why did I, you know, why did I pick Coke and not Pepsi? Why did I pick Volkswagen and not Fiat? Why did I just, just look at yourself. And so that's all I do. I find a story that's really interesting. And I think, wow, why is that interesting? And then that becomes the, the bit at the end of it. If I'm interested in that story, there's a, something on the right-hand side of the equals sign. The story is the left-hand side of the equals sign, you know, the plus minus divided by, and then you get to the equals. So what does all that add up to? Why did I find that interesting? And that becomes the right-hand side of the equals sign. Yeah? Being a, most, blokes, most blokes are full of stories. Women don't do stories, but blokes... Blokes, or blokes do stories. We, we did, a woman was telling me, we talked about it earlier, a woman was telling me, women talk to each other, but men talk at each other. <laughs> and what men do when they go to the pub uh, is they like an armory of stories that they can pull out and get a lot of laughs with. And so all I do is I remember those stories, and if they're really good stories, I remember them. And all I've got to think at the end of it is, now why was that such a good story? If it was good, there's a reason why it was good. What was the reason? And then that becomes the right-hand side of the equal sign. Yeah? That's 95% actually answering the question and then the solution. 95%? Like you said, 95% Einstein. Ah, perfect, yeah, perfect, 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 yeah, Einstein, yeah. If you get the, it's exactly that, if you get the, the first part right, and also, if I just talk about the right-hand side of the equal sign, it turns into a rant. Here's what I think you should know. Fuck that, I don't need to know what you think I should know. Tell me something really, really interesting, and then at the end, if you want, tell me what that means. And that'd be that'd be that'd be interesting, but but not a rant, not just a you know another rant. Yeah. Question. I, and I think that's how advertising works. Is is rather than just go on TV and start nagging people about my product, let's tell you what's really interesting. Let's tell you a really interesting story, something or, or something funny or or a song you want to sing, or something you really like, and then at the end of it, here's this product with, uh, and why you should buy it. So it's like a present. I've got, a pre I've got, I've got this thing here, and I'm going to wrap it. And the better I wrap it, the more you're going to want to open it. Now, if all I do is wrap it with nothing inside it, which is most commercials nowadays, it's kind of a waste. You've unwrapped it, and there's nothing inside it. If all I do is put the present there with no wrapping, well, pretty much you're not even going to bother looking at it. You put the wrapping on it, which is, which is my job. First off, the marketing and planners get the present right, which is the marketing part, the thinking, and then it's my job to get the wrapping right, which is the impact, and to get you interested and to get you remembering it. Yeah? So, as you say, 95%, for me, 95% of the job is the wrapping, yeah. Okay, we've got time for just two more questions. So right there in the back in the center, gentleman in the center, uh, with the tie on, and that's right. Uh, right down here, 
glasses and tie. <laughs> Lift up your hand. Right there. Thank you. Um, Vipan Narang. Um, as somebody who's not involved in marketing, branding, copy, or any of those other things, um, why do you think it is that you could have an industry that um, spends so much money um, by listening to yourself uh, frittering it away, really, and yet unlike almost any other profession which is judged by its outputs and its outcomes, yet this profession doesn't really do that. So can you explain in very simple terms why you think uh, that is the, the case? You want me to defend advertising? <laughs> Not necessarily defend it, but uh, can you explain how an industry can fritter away so much money and yet continue to just fritter it away? Well, in my experience, 90% of everything is shit. And that goes for football, films, cab drivers, advertising, anything else. 90% is crap and doesn't know what it's doing. I only want to operate in the 10% that does. So that's like advertising. All I'm talking about is the top 10%. The other 90%. But then you get 90% of everything is, is, is pretty bad. Politicians, journalists, whatever you're doing, 90%, you know, whatever you're doing, 90% is pretty crap and 10% is great. And it's a real effort to, in whatever job you're in to stay in the top 10%. Uh, so I'm not going to defend advertising any more than Alex Ferguson would defend football or Arsene Winger or Jose Mourinho, they're about their teams versus everybody else in football. And I'm about my teams versus the rest of advertising. It's my job to kill the rest of advertising, not defend it. Okay, the that. advertising is wallpaper. It's my job to be the picture on the wall. We have time just for one more question. Right here in the front. Red. Red top. Hi, my, my name is Sophie and I work in account management. Um, I, I agree that creativity um, is, is critical, but creativity is also about where you invest your money as, as a client. Um, if it's all about the people on the street, and I completely agree, shouldn't more companies invest in customer service, the front line, um, call centers, educating those people, investing in them so that when the client is calling upon the customer, they have an amazing experience. And then, from there, then they spread the word of mouth. So you could be right, but that's a marketing question. I'm in advertising. I'm, uh, I, I, you know, marketing is not my job. You're I not going to defend advertising? Yeah, it all sounds, all sounds sense, what you said. I've got no view on it, because that's not what I do. I, I see a lot of crap in those areas, and what you said makes sense. But it's not my area. Advertising is the voice of marketing, it's not marketing. As soon as everybody clears those two things up, <coughs> you'll get back to some decent advertising and, and creative advertising. You know, the, uh, uh, I was talking to um, um, Peter Wood, who, who, who uh, founded um, Direct Line, Eshore, Sheila's Wheels, Go Compare, all of these different companies, all of these different insurance companies. And he had... Um, um, what's that bloke? Used to be a film director. Michael Winner. Michael Winner. He had Michael Winner 
uh, fronting up Eshore ads. And um, they were, and I said to him one day, I said, oh, aren't you a bit embarrassed, Pete, that uh, your Michael Winner ads have been voted the most embarrassing ads by everybody on the box? And he said, yeah, now ask me what they did for my business. Before Michael Winner, it was going along like that. I did Michael Winner, it went like that. I was, so, I was so embarrassed about them being voted irritating that I took Michael Winner off and it went back down like that again. I bring Michael Winner back. He said, the, the, I now do advertising to be irritating because it works. So I'll make Go Compare as irritating as possible. And that's what he does. And I think you have to get back to, that's why I say, when it's the voice of ad marketing, for me it's a lot bigger job than... The, but the clarity of the voice of marketing, but the bigger job is go back and rediscover what you're doing, and the way the way the way advertising people used to know what they were doing, instead of just a bit of decoration on the end of marketing. That's a much longer discussion. We'll wrap it up. Thank you so much for your time, Dave Trot, for making time to be here with us tonight. <laughs>